Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Yes Indeed podcast created by Mark Shepard and run by me, Thomas Manuel. Today's interview is a chonky one. I sit down with Josh Fox and talk about Black Armada Games, and we try to tell the story of this publishing company for the last 10 years. If you're interested in game design and you're interested in game publishing, you need case studies to kind of figure out what does it look like to actually be a small-scale indie publisher, right? I think you get that with this interview. I think it's worth every minute of its one-and-a-half-hour runtime. Before we get to the interview, though, a shout-out to my newest patrons, David Huddleston Jr., Michael Bowman, Daniel Klein, Mark Teppo, Rob Abrazado, and Eric Saltwell. I am super grateful for everyone's support. It's been a tough month here, so I'm especially grateful for everybody who shows up and contributes a little bit to the Patreon, whether it's for the newsletter or for this podcast. And with that out of the way, let's get to this interview. And I am sitting down with Josh Fox. Josh is the award-winning designer of Flotsam, Adrift Amongst the Stars, and Last Fleet. He's the co-designer of the highly influential GM-less mystery game Lovecraft-esque, alongside Becky Anderson. And the two of them together run Black Armada Games, a UK-based publisher which has been putting out inventive role-playing games for more than a decade. Josh is also the editor and the cast member of Black Armada Tales, an actual play podcast with a wonderful run of Apocalypse Keys, and they're currently playing Lovecraft-esque second edition. The award-winning game is getting a second edition, and you can support the crowdfunding campaign on Backerkit right now. I'll put a link in the description. It's a really great game. It's definitely worth checking out. But uh, first of all, Josh, good morning. How are you doing? Hello. Nice to be here. Yeah, well, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really glad that you agreed to do this. I'm super excited to sit down and kind of tell the history of Black Armada games. To some extent, I want to figure out the story of your publishing company. Okay, but a warm-up question, just to get us into the groove. Going back into the mists of time slightly, I want to know, where do you think your first piece of game design was? Oh boy. I mean, I guess it's probably something when I was noodling around with bits of a4 paper on my mum's living room as a teenager would be my guess. I think, I, I don't know whether this is normal. I, I, I suspect it is that people who play like Dungeons and Dragons or what have you, I mean, it's quite a, a frustrating. You inevitably find yourself saying, I want to write myself some modifications, or maybe I'm going to try and write an entire better system. And I, I mean, there must be boxes and boxes of paper probably now in a landfill somewhere rather than having been kept, I'm guessing. What was on those pieces of paper? Do you remember what you were trying to fix in D&D? I think I thought that I should make combat realistic. And obviously, being a 13-year-old, I knew loads about real combat. I didn't. I didn't know anything about it, but I thought I did. So that was what I was kind of trying to do. I mean, nowadays... Because it still sometimes comes back to me. I still think about this because, I mean, my games now are not so much about fighting. But when you have a fight, you want it to be really cool, right? And a a favorite author of mine is Joe Abercrombie. I think he does really good, punchy fight scenes where people will... They have these moments where things turn on a dime. They'll have 
a real sense of kind of life and death and also the kind of stupidity and lack of dignity involved in fighting and that's the kind of stuff i would like to capture now if i'm such a thing which i might be so where on this journey with game design did black armada games start like what was the first thing that you did that made you think you know what i should start a publishing company i need a label under which these games can come out and i'm sure somewhere in there there's an answer for why originally you and Becky were referred to as Admiral Frax and Admiral Rebellious. I'm guessing that's how it's pronounced, but you can correct me. So I think it was in 2012. We had our friend Martin around for a games evening. We, as a group of friends, we frequently go away, I mean, like once a year, to some cottage somewhere and play games together for a full week. And a lot of the games we played there were what we would then term homebrew. Um, we'd nearly always write our own system, and certainly we would write our own scenario uh, for whatever we were going to run. And I think it was Martin who said to us, we're spending all this time writing these things and they're really good. Why on earth aren't we putting them out there? And we kind of went, mm, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Um, and so we got very excited. He went away and set up a website. We started coming up with all kinds of ideas about what we might produce and kind of core systems and this kind of thing. And I think it was me that suggested the name Black Armada, more or less just out of my head. Um, and they seemed to like it, so we just grabbed it. There wasn't much thought put into that at all. I think we'd put a lot more thought into it if we were coming up with it now. Martin, it, it fell away, as sometimes people do, but we carried on going with that. And oh, you asked about the names. So uh, it's Rabelais is how I pronounce it. I don't know if that that's it's, he's a character from a six year campaign of dark heresy that I ran. I, I, I needed a name. So I grabbed that slightly regretted it because it's so difficult to say and spell. But anyway, that's what happened. And Frax, I think, is a character from Doctor Who or no, it's a type of like a weird drug from Doctor Who, I think. So Becky's uh, picked that up and, and run with it because we both love Doctor Who. So, Did any of those designs from that early period that you just described, did any of them come out? I mean, I don't think that immediate period where we were in the full flush of, yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be Famous game designers think so, but very shortly afterwards, Becky started work on When the Dark is Gone, which uh, has come out as part of the Seven Wonders anthology and won some awards, I think. And my game, Disaster Strikes, which I still periodically think of coming back and revamping, which I guess you would say is my first game. Uh, they're both available. They're out there. I've actually heard a lot about that anthology. It seems really interesting i've heard a bunch of games recommended from it how did that come about was pelgrain putting together an anthology and then reached out to becky yeah yeah so i think this was the brainchild of cat tobin who approached becky and said i want to do this thing i'd like to include your game i, I guess becky must have sent her a copy of the game or something mm -hmm. and i think she pulled together possibly with some suggestions from becky the kind of list of authors who might contribute. I think it's brilliant. I mean, I've played 
most of the games in that book and yeah it's very high quality stuff and and it's the kind of stuff that i really like there's a lot of kind of sad feelings on index cards kind of stuff <laughs> yeah sad feelings on index cards is a great genre one of my one of my favorites <laughs> okay so lovecraft desk is a gmless mystery game where everyone takes turns controlling a single character who's investigating some kind of lovecraftian cosmic horror it won role playing game of the year at the geocore delano awards in 2018 yeah that's right to our immense surprise because dnd was on the roster that year we'd been told by a publisher there's no point in putting it in we're going to do it anyway so and then we won so yeah for anyone who doesn't speak italian like me that just means game of the year 2018 It was also nominated for the Golden Geek Game of the Year 2015 and was a finalist in the IGDN Awards for Best Setting and Best Art. It's influenced so many collaborative mystery games like Bleak Spirit and Brindlewood Bay. So Josh, tell me a little bit about the first kernel that kind of got you excited to make this collaborative mystery game. Well, so the story behind this is that Becky had just read Stealing Cthulhu by Graham Wormsley and she came out of it and said, "Josh, I don't know why Graham didn't write a a, a story game uh, about Lovecraftian stories because he's basically written a blueprint for one. I don't know why he didn't do it. We should do it." And I kind of went, "Oh, interesting idea." And then I read it as well and went yeah god you're absolutely right we should definitely should do this and we thought this would be very easy to do uh, it turned out to be harder than we thought that that was kind of how we got started with it was reading that and getting enthused by the ideas in that book was there a kind of game a story game that you were playing at that time that you were excited by and you thought oh oh we should design a game like this Yes, certainly for me, we were playing quite a bit of Fiasco and Fiasco had inspired the game I referred to earlier Disaster Strikes as that kind of structure around scenes and acts and rising action and so on. And then Microscope is the other one I would point to, which are one of my favorite story games. I really like the way that it formalizes the kind of roles and who contributes when. So those are things that we were playing a lot of and was definitely at the front of my mind when we were designing that. Okay, yeah, yeah, I definitely see the connections there. They're both games that have a lot of structure but at the same time have a lot of like improvisation. So I know that at some point in the middle of designing Lovecraftesque, you had a kind of problem that you noticed with the game that that it wasn't flowing properly and then you came up with this mechanic that is called leaping to conclusions if i'm not wrong that's right so what exactly was the problem that leaping to conclusions was trying to solve and and how did it solve it so it happened is the first time we play tested it actually it was immediately obvious we had a great time with a session set in some scottish hotel with a weird monster on the people saw on the shore of the lake or i don't know it was spooky it was cool but the problem that arose was we wanted a game which like microscope so let's take a step back what i want from a horror story i absolutely don't want the group to be sat discussing 
oh, what's going to happen? Let's agree what's going to happen and then we'll role play it out because yeah. that just destroys the suspense that is central to horror for me. Um, and so this meant that uh, I think in combination with the fact that I played a lot of Microscope, it made me think, well, this is the way we're going to write this game is each individual player will create some component, a, a clue, uh, a spooky scene, and then no one else will be allowed to give them suggestions or ask questions. It will all be coming from this one person. So it will preserve that sense of mystery that you get if you actually have a GM'd game. To me, that's what I get from a GM'd mystery game is that real sense of, oh my God, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know what this means. And avoid breaking the atmosphere with this endless discussion. However, if you do that, what we found is that because each person was throwing in whatever happened to be in their head, you got this mishmash of random stuff that didn't necessarily fit together. And this turned out to be quite hard then to weave together at the end because you want a, an ending. And that was one of the things I think we took from Fiasco that it has kind of some structured, a, a structured middle bit where you have a tilt and, and a structured end bit where we find out what happens to everyone. And we wanted to preserve something of that kind of structure. And again, Stealing Cthulhu refers to the idea of the final horror, which we have incorporated into the game. As obvious, isn't it? Any horror story has to end with the, the big reveal. And it turns out to be very difficult to do that if all you've got is a pile of random stuff that people have just chucked in without any thought for how it fits together. And, and this led to the idea of leaping to conclusions, which is simply, in my mind, it is... It's the glue that holds the game together. And it is, in effect, it takes the place of the prep that a GM would do if they were running a mystery game. You wouldn't run a mystery game without having some idea of where it's going and what you think the end game's going to be. And so you shouldn't do that in a GMless game either. So all we said was after each turn, once you've revealed a clue, a new clue, you write down what you think is going on. And uh, over time, we developed that a little bit into what is happening, who is doing it, and why are they doing it, slash what will happen if you leave them and to, to finish off whatever they're, they're up to. And that's what I do as a, as a GM, prepping for a mystery game. Those are the things I would write down at the beginning. And so, therefore, after each turn, you've got that in your mind. And you can use that to influence the clues that you're going to put in place. And crucially, obviously, it means if somebody comes up with a really surprising clue that you weren't expecting, it forces you to then think, what does that mean for my theory? And you don't end up kind of ignoring what other people have, have brought in, which is clearly really important in a collaborative uh, GMless game. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting solution to this problem because you start out going like, okay, what is the successful part of a traditional horror game or a traditional mystery game, which is that I, as the player, don't know what's going on and are kind of powerless and have to just react to the experience. So you've taken that and you've said, what if I just chop that up between the players at any given moment in time? One person gets to be the GM and set the scene and that scene is going to be surprising and spooky to the other players and I get that part. And then you come across this problem and you say, what if you all prepped quietly by yourselves or secretly prepped what you thought was going on? And then I guess this is the most interesting thing that you then trust that just doing that process, just asking yourself that question 
will then filter into whatever is going to happen next. And when you play tested it, did that just automatically happen? Was it just something that you were like, oh, if we do this behavior, will emerge from the players and it just worked or was it more complicated than that? It pretty much just worked. Like with any game, there's always a, a risk that an individual player or even a whole group won't quite get it. I've certainly played games where people almost don't seem to... They've no, maybe they've not come up with a fully formed theory. They go, oh, this is a bit too difficult, so I'll just say it's Fishman uh, and leave it at that. And... The, the game says write down a fully fledged theory. Obviously, you've, you've only got like a couple of minutes, so you can't write down that much. But um, if you don't fully flesh it out, then uh, maybe you sometimes end up kind of fumbling your way through it. And people sometimes throw in clues that don't, that are a bit of a curveball as a result. But usually, there's at least one person in the group who's got a strong enough idea of what's going on as a result of that that when you get to the end, they're not, well, I've got no idea what to do now, so we can't have an ending, which is the most important thing. It does, as I say, I regard it as the glue that holds the game together and stops the clues just being a random pile of stuff. But even with a random pile of clues, as long as you've been thinking about it as you go, you should be able to get to an ending. Yeah, I just think that is really insightful and the kind of mechanic that you have to play to really experience if you read it in the text, you might not quite understand how it works and what it's going to do. But like in play, it creates this emergent behavior. And that's just really interesting design to me. Okay, so when you released Lovecraft Desk, like what was the initial reception? Did people get it? Was it popular? Did it sell well? Uh, we kickstarted it in 2015. And it was our first Kickstarter and our first big game if you don't count seven wonders that being kind of not really our game um we didn't know what to expect at all and i still don't really know how to kind of contextualize it because if you look nowadays a successful kickstarter in block capitals successful yeah is probably getting like a hundred thousand million dollars or something big and they just that did not exist back then people didn't make that kind of money back then so, I mean, we got something like £15,000 at Kickstarter, and we were pretty happy with that. I mean, we yeah. were worried. We didn't know whether we would fund. We were worried about what would happen if we only just funded and had we got our maths right. We'd yeah. never done this before. Or what if it goes bananas and you sell absolutely loads and then you don't actually know how to fulfill something at that scale. So it was a very nerve-wracking experience. So in a way, I don't know whether 15000 was a good number or not really but it was a good number for us and it worked out well that we kind of we made some money out of it right away and felt like we had made a good impact with our first game what was interesting to me anyway is that we did that and we thought oh brilliant we've done that now job done 600 people bought our game now we can move on with our lives but it turned out that and this is not as obvious I guess probably to anyone who's working as a game designer that people continue to buy it after the campaign has finished and we didn't really know that we didn't think that was going to happen I think it has proved more successful post Kickstarter than it did at Kickstarter that is my feeling Uh, other games that we've Kickstarted 
the ratio has looked different yeah. and the the post campaign period has been less impressive compared to the main kickstarter or perhaps the main kickstarter has proved more impressive i don't know which way you look at it so yeah i think it's our most successful game our first one and we've certainly been very happy with the level of success it's enjoyed that was a very rambly answer wasn't it no not at all not at all i think i read vincent baker right about that difference uh between the success of a game during the crowdfunding campaign and the post campaign shelf life right and there are certain kinds of games that whatever you make on the crowdfunding campaign that's 90% of the money you're going to make on the game full stop like the long tail of the product is 10% of its total lifetime earnings the fact that lovecraft esque has grown post campaign for me then is a sign and i think vincent baker says this uh, in his article he says that it's a sign that the game is actually being played and that word of mouth is carrying the game forward and guaranteeing sales because people are actually playing it and talking about it does that make sense to you it completely does and it and it maps onto what i know about lovecraft desk was just trying to pull together for our press release the list of actual plays that people have done and it's huge i mean it's just there's loads and loads of people who have done it at actual play i hear a lot of people running it at conventions because it's very convention being a one shot sort of a game it's very convention friendly and also it's I think what's good about it is it's very very easy to teach both design wise and we've written it to be easy to teach. So yes, I hear a lot of it being played probably more than any of our other games. So when you say teaching actually, I think that's very interesting. What did you do to make Lovecraft Desk a game that is easy to learn and I think very importantly easy to teach? Yeah, so so I think to me it's just about simplicity from a design perspective like uh, the more you can boil your game down to a small number of discrete components that are in themselves quite simple then it's easier to for, for people to pick it up if you've got lots and lots of subsystems with weird unique mechanics where it's going to take longer right and if you've got lots and lots of like lists and lists of special abilities or classes or what have you that's going to be hard as well which is not necessarily a bad thing it's just figuring out how to structure it so that there's a kind of core that you can learn at the right moment to get started and then each other bit can be learned as you go without kind of feeling like i don't really know what i'm doing and and obviously for lovecraft desk it's a very simple game i mean you could almost write it one sheet of paper i think take it in turns to run a scene where you introduce a weird clue at the end of the scene write down what you think is going on continue until you've done eight scenes and then do a big reveal like it's a bit more than that but maybe not a lot more and so i think that makes it super simple to learn and also it's not just simple but it's kind of intuitive in terms of like you don't have to be a gamer to understand that i've heard a lot of people say that they've introduced people to role playing through lovecraft s has been there for which is it's so very satisfying to hear that it makes me happy but it also i think it tells you something about the game which is like you're not a gamer you know how to invent a weird thing so i feel like and, and most people know kind of vaguely what a horror story feels like so when it comes to leaping to conclusions they can do that in terms of the teaching the the thing that we did which i don't think we were the first to do it but i can never remember who it is that i think it might be one of avery alder's games but i'm not sure 
to introduce something called the teaching guide, I think we probably are the people who have made it most structured and kind of clearly designed for that purpose. And we separated it from the main game text. So you have the main game text, you all the rules in, you read through that, loads of scenarios and extra material that we commissioned as stretch goals, and then you've got the teaching guide. And it is written in kind of not not necessarily idiomatic English, but what's the words like informal? It's got a slightly informal style. It's designed to be read out to a group of people so that it's talking about we are going to do this and we will do that. And it's presented with little triggers that say, read this bit at the start. When you get to the end of the first scene, read this bit. When you get to it, so it's like it's chunking up that learning and making it as easy as possible. You don't have to try and learn everything. Once it's sometimes I think with role playing, there's a, it's almost like you've got a whole session's worth of learning before you can get started. And this is designed so that you break it down. Well, there's something else I wanted to say about that. Oh yeah, and and then the other thing that we did, which I personally really like, I don't know how important it is to break it down into little chunks so that you can pass it around the group. And you take turns to read. That it just means no one's falling asleep. It means everybody feels like they're kind of taking equal part. I think that's how the quiet year structures the entire rule book. I wondered if it was the quiet year. Yeah, I think I can't remember whether we wrote it before or after that. But anyway, I feel like it might have influenced us. Yeah. I also know that Lovecraft-esque is very popular in translation, right? Like, not in English. Right. So which languages is Lovecraft-esque best known in? Italian. Uh, yeah. It's been translated into French, German, Spanish, and Italian. And those are the ones I know about. I don't know whether other people have done it as well, but Italian is 100% the most popular because that's where it won. I mean, a Gioco dell'anno is the Italian. It's basically like the Ennies for, for Italy and maybe for Europe. I don't know. It's a little hard to know. And I mean, I experienced this recently. I went to play Modena in, and I, I think we are better known in Italy than we are in the... It just felt like everybody knew who we were. And wow. Okay, wow. That That is really interesting. Pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, it's weird. That is... That's so cool. I don't know why either. I like, yeah. I don't. Well, I'm, I have a, I have some inkling as to why. If you want to talk about it, I can. But uh, yeah, I'd like to know what your theory is. Well, so the, I think there's two things. Some countries seem to really love Lovecraft, right? I think Italy's one. Japan might be another. So that might have something to do with it. The guys who we got to do the translation, and this was the first. I think the first time anyone translated anything of ours. So we, they just approached us and said, "Can we translate your game?" We're like, "Yeah, okay." I don't know. Can you? <laughs> um, and uh, they have, I mean, this is, seems to be a common thing with Italian translations. They are amazingly good at art. And so, and what these guys did was they took our game where we got a kind of fairly traditional, well, for us it's traditional anyway. You kind of think, okay, what's the archetypal scene in this game? Cool. Now draw a picture of that and put that on the front cover and we'll get a really good artist to do it and it'll be really cool. They took a completely different approach. They said, well, we're just going to have this plain white game with a little elder sign in the middle. Kind of looks like it might be some kind of weird tome or something, but it is it's white with red writing on it. And you're like, okay, that's quite striking. And then they got, let's see if I've got one here. Can you see that? Uh, this little torch, uh, which comes with the game. And for the benefit of people who can only hear what um, I'm describing, it's maybe like two or three inch. It's like a keychain torch kind of a keychain torch 
but you couldn't see on the light, but it's actually a ultraviolet torch. So it um, produces this kind of bluey, purpley light. And the book was covered in kind of horrible, arcane markings that you can only see if you shine the torch on it, right? Ah, this is so cool. Mind-blowing. And apparently people will walk up to their stores at conventions and not knowing what this thing is, and they'll just go, here, look at this, bam, point the torch at it, and the person's like, I want that. I don't even know what it is, but I want it. So, yeah, that might have something to do with it. Wow, that is so cool. That is really cool. Who is the Italian publisher? Like, please mention their name. It's Narrativa, which is N-A-2-R-S-A-2-T-S-I-V-A. And they're, yeah, they're re- they've done lots of great translations. They're very cool people. So we've decided to steal this idea of the UV torch, the Lovecraft Death second edition. All of the art in the second edition will have an ultraviolet layer in it. Oh, fantastic. That is so cool. Yeah. So because we loved it so much. So the front cover has got an illustration, which is by its, it is that in that traditional kind of, here's a scary scene kind of format, but there's also hidden stuff in it where if you shine the torch on it, you discover more about what's really going on in the scene. Yeah, so I'm very excited about that. That is really cool. I feel people are going to love that kind of thing. I think the crowdfunding campaign is going to do awesome. I am super excited for you. But let's move on because we have 10 years to cover. So the next thing I noticed on the journey of Black Armada Games is that after Lovecraft-esque, there is a three-year gap before we get to your next big release, which is Flotsam. And this is really interesting to me because I always think about how we tell stories about creators. Like if you go into the IMDb page of a famous director or something like that, you'll see a list of movies and they'll have the years in which their movies came out. And the thing I'm always interested in is what did they do between those years where a movie came out? Like what was their life like? So... Do you remember what these three years after Lovecraft Desk was like? Were you at that point thinking, I'm a game designer, I've made a successful game? Or were you wondering whether you're ever going to make another game again? Because that's the thing that happens. So yeah, I'm curious. Do you remember what what you were doing between 2015 and 2018? And what was game design like during that time? I'm just trying to think back. Okay. No, I remember. You asked the question and it was, there was a, just a kind of, God, I don't know. So our first child was born <laughs> in the middle of 2013. We must have written Lovecraft-esque roughly during the period that we were doing parental leave. We split the parental leave. So Becky had the first six months and I had the second six months. And somehow we managed to get it out into Kickstarter during the first what must have been two years of our son Raphael's life which looking back is kind of what really did we really do that I don't understand how that happened really I think we were lucky in some ways because he was quite a quiet child he's quite happy to kind of bod about playing not the most demanding and that certainly for me I think Becky found this harder there would be periods of time when he was sleeping or 
he was just kind of bodding around and you could kind of write some stuff in the background and it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Couldn't do that with our second child at all. Anyway. <laughs> and that might be the answer because 2016, our second child was born. And there we go. <laughs> uh, and that's the year after the Kickstarter, right? So uh, I think things must have gotten quite a bit harder. So juggling, I guess the answer is we were juggling real life stuff. We both have day jobs, yeah. or we had at the time. Anyway, we'd both moved to working part time. We, we had prior to having our children, we were working full time in London in quite um, demanding jobs, and we moved to, to part time partly to al- allow us to pursue this. Wow. So I think that's probably why it didn't just completely fail. I think if we tried to do this while working full time, it might have been cool. a lot harder. But I guess that's the reason for the three-year lag is that we've got a very intense period of our lives with two children and things just took longer. Thanks for answering that. I'm as interested in these gaps as I am in the in the peaks of this story. So I appreciate it. Yeah, that's good. Interesting. Yeah. So Flotsam Adrift Amongst the Stars is a belonging outside belonging game. Like other B.O.B. games, it's a slice of life uh, game set amongst outcasts and misfits and other people on the fringe of a much more prosperous society on a giant space station. So what about Avery Elder and Benjamin Rosenbaum's design with Belonging Outside Belonging drew you to that kind of game, made you interested in designing that kind of game? And also generally, when you're influenced by somebody else's design, you're kind of going through a process of adding and subtracting as well constantly, right? So what about the framework did you feel you needed to change or you had some kind of instinct to to modify? So so this predates belonging outside belonging, actually. The Flotsam came out before the term belonging outside belonging was coined as far as I recall. And I think it predates Dream Apart, or at least my knowledge of it so it was the dreamer skew the first edition which was just a quite a small kind of pdf only document that had somehow come out maybe through patreon or something like that and i picked it up from i don't know where read it and was like wow this is amazing so i was really into gmless stuff and i still gmless always has a special place in my heart because i just love playing a character and i love GMing a game and it really annoys me that I have to choose between these two things. So the more something is GMless, the happier I am. And this was what I loved about picking up uh, Dream of Skew is that I could see that I got a really full-bodied chunk of the world to GM and a cool character. The details of all of those really kind of grabbed me as well. So I was like, okay, we're going to play this, everyone. I ran around and got rounded up my friends to play Dream of Skew, which we did and had a, I had a great time doing it. Some of them had more fun than others, I think. But I still absolutely adore that kind of that commitment to doing both as fully as possible. So I just, I think I just wanted to create something using this system because I, I loved it so much. But I took a particular approach with Flotsam, which was to kind of strip back the proliferation of detailed individual moves that each character's got. So for anyone who's not familiar with belonging outside belonging, each character has like a list of strong moves, a list of 
regular moves, I want to say, something like that, and a list of weak moves, which are very specific things that you can do in the fiction, like pull out a gun and threaten somebody, or reveal a secret, or it's that kind of very specific thing you're going to do, which then leads to generating tokens, which you can spend to do stuff. And what I found, one of my friends who really enjoyed this game found it challenging to manage all of that. It's a lot of information to hold in your head at any given time. So many different options that I could be picking from. And they found that it was a bit much. So I tried to kind of bring it back to more of a less specific prompts and more kind of here are some keywords almost that you've got that you can generate a problem or a solution out of and simplify it that way because I wanted that particular friend to play this game with me. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. I think if we scratch the surface on how many games were designed with specific people in mind, that would actually be a large number. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, but I guess for any person that a game might be designed for, there's presumably other people like them in the world. So hopefully it's not quite as... as Yeah, I mean, there's that old adage, right? The more specific you get, the more universal it'll become. But how do you think about Flotsam now looking back on it? Do you still like your design work in there? Do you think there's more to do with the framework that you would like to do? Because I think as far as I know, you've never gone back to the belonging, outside belonging kind of framework. Yeah, I mean, I still really love it. Um, I, I don't think there's anything that I've made that I look back and think, oh, you know, could have done better with that. I, I, I feel I, I'm generally happy with what I turn out. And Flotsam is, is no exception. But um, I definitely feel there's more. feel like the simple model of you generate a, a token and then you spend a token is almost a little bit boring. I don't want to kind of, I'm not slamming Avery Elder, but there's a lot you can do with that idea of tokens. Like I give a token to you, you take a token from me. And there's a bit of that in Belonging Outside Belonging, but not as much as you could have. I, I suspect some people have already started to do stuff in this space that I just don't know about. But I got very excited at one point about the idea of people having like their own unique tokens that were a particular color so that then when you get a token from, say, I I was imagining a Westminster politics game because I always like Westminster politics stuff. I'm a former civil servant. I don't think it's as interesting as I think it is, but nevertheless, can't stop myself thinking about it. So I thought it'd be quite cool if you had like, you've got the kind of spin doctor character, for example, and if you manage to get a token off the spin doctor character, that token will be usable to do spin doctory kind of things so you cross-pollinating between characters i think that'd be really cool i'm sure there's lots that could be done um but i I feel like gmless has maybe had a moment and it's fallen away a little bit okay that is an interesting question because you know what do you mean by the term moment right like it's not clear to me at all Definitely the RPG space has become a lot more formalized. There are a lot more people making games, but it feels like what a successful Kickstarter is right now. Like you said, we're pushing the limit on what, what a successful crowdfunding campaign looks like constantly. And it feels like it's the people at that level who kind of decide what we think of as having a moment. 
Right? Does that does that make sense? That's a really good point, and it's, it's never a good idea to compare two things too closely that are that are separate. But I guess I think that the scene is to at least for a while it, it became dominated by Powered by the Apocalypse, and then later Forged in the Dark. And I don't know what when that's. I think that's just for a very small group of people. If you know what I mean, it's just in that tiny little indie bubble. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying that I think all of these statements exist in a very specific context, right? So if you were talking about, oh, what are people in the indie scene constantly talking about? What do they think is is really, you know, popular or cutting edge right now? Then, yeah, I think that's true. But if you go on to Reddit or some other forum, you realize, okay, no, there's it's a completely different world out there. There's just many different communities, many different cultures. That's completely right. But I guess as a designer, you have to think about both what you'd like to write, but also what's likely to be well-received. You can write stuff which you don't think is going to be well-received. That's fine. I'm very happy to write little games, which I don't think very many people will play. But I want somebody to play them. I don't see there's very much point in writing something that I don't think... And and so, therefore, all of that kind of conversation about what's hot and what are people talking about is surprisingly influential on what you feel oh, right now, am I going to write something that's PBTA? Or am I going to write something that's Fortune's Rock? Or am I going to write something GMless? I guess there's this osmosis thing about it kind of steering you a little bit. Probably shouldn't be. Probably better if that didn't happen. It's interesting that we're here because I guess the next two big releases from Black Armada are both PBTA games, right? The first of which is, is White Marks, which is designed by Becky Anderson. And I think when I interviewed Becky, we talked a little bit about it. But what I want to ask you is actually that I noticed when reading Bite Marks that it's dedicated to you. And your next big game, Last Fleet, is dedicated to Becky, which is really sweet and wonderful. So what does this collaboration look like on a day-to-day basis? You're clearly working on separate games, not working together as school designers necessarily. But I'm sure you're also working on them together to some extent. So what what does this look like? Well, yeah, so it does depend on whether we're work, working on a game together or, or separately. Absolutely. But when we're working on stuff separately, there's a, a, a constant low-level flow of conversation about the game, about, oh, I've just had this thought about maybe I'll do this. And we go it's not true at the moment because it's the summer holidays and we, the children are at home all the time but when it's not the summer holidays we usually go for a walk together at lunchtime um, and we'll often kind of knock ideas back and forth there or we'll talk about it over, over while we're preparing breakfast that kind of thing and we obviously we play each other's games so when we've played a game I guess if you, if you play test a game with a group of people who you know they're probably going to give you a bit of feedback. They're probably going to come up with some ideas of their own as around the design, right? Which could be really helpful or really annoying, depending. But you'll walk away from that and you'll go back home and you'll have your own thoughts. But with the two of us, we will obviously play test a game together. We'll have that period of the initial reaction. And then there's a kind of cooling off period in which the other person is also thinking about what happened, not just the person who actually is designing the game. And so there's a bit more of an opportunity for a kind of 
I guess maybe divergent thinking. You know what I mean? Like you've got somebody else who's almost as close to it as you are, who might say, "Hey, had you thought about doing this?" And they're thinking about it almost as much as you are because we, as well as being a creative partnership, we're a business partnership. So I play a big role in getting Becky's games to Kickstarter and getting them promoted and uh, doing the work to get them laid out and all that kind of stuff. So I am thinking about her games almost as much as she's thinking about them. Um, so yeah, I guess that just means you've got kind of two creative brains thinking about something and it ultimately is her game and she makes the decisions and all of my ideas are just suggestions that she can and will ignore. But it, yeah, it's a little bit different from just writing stuff by yourself, I think. That was a really lovely answer. Thank you. It really does sound like a delightful partnership. Okay, let's talk about Last Fleet. Now, Last Fleet is a sci-fi game about the last of humanity fleeing in spaceships from an existential alien threat that has probably wiped out everybody else. It's a game about what humanity is amidst all this desperate survival. I know you're personally a big fan of the PBTA framework. Was this another case of you playing other games like this and thinking like with BOB that this is a really cool system and you wanted to make something with that? Or was there a different seed to the project that became Last Fleet? I think the concept came first. I think I'd been thinking about doing something which, to be totally honest about it, is came from watching Battlestar Galactica and wanting to have a game like that. I think PBTA has gradually and insidiously infiltrated my way of thinking about game design. I think I saw Jason Morningstar say somewhere on social media that PBTA had ruined his gaming group and it was all they played. Presumably that's not true, but it does feel like that a little bit at times. I think if you like it, you really like it. And it can be hard then. Like, why would you want to move away from 2D6? That's such a nice, simple dice mechanic. I'm not going to change that. Why would you then, if you keep in 2d6, you're going to want to have the same sort of stat range because it's going to work that way. And why would you, every individual component you look at and you think, I'm not sure I really want to change that too much because that's pretty much why I like this system. So yeah, I guess that must have been peak PBTA for me then in that it was hard to imagine writing a game that wasn't a PBTA game. I, I think that might have been what was going on. But I also think there was there are some influences going on. So obviously you mentioned bite marks, and despite the fact that they came out on consecutive years, Flotsam, and bite marks and Last Fleet were all written at around about the same time. I think definitely there was big overlap, and so those sorts of ideas are frothing around the same time as playing a lot of PBTN, particularly Night Witches, was an influence on me, and I think bite marks, Last Fleet, and Night Witches have some common a kind of common approach to what kind of thing might happen in the game. So it's kind of like that that iteration between the social, emotional side of things and the action, possible death, certainly adrenaline and fear side of things. I don't know if probably Night Witches wasn't the first to do that, but it was a particularly good example in my mind at the time. 
I can't remember what question you are, so I kind of go off on a little bit of a wonder there. No, no, that's absolutely fine. That's absolutely fine. Okay, in some ways at least, I think Last Fleet is the biggest game to come out of Black Armor, at least at least in page count, right? But it just feels maximalist in a way that a lot of your other games don't. For example, you've got these 12 playbooks based on the Zodiac or Star Signs. You've got a lot of these intricate systems. I mean, for sure, it's like moves in some sense are like small little systems of their own, but there are also these larger systems and loops going on. The idea of trying to convey this feeling of desperation of being on the run and needing human connection to survive this interesting loop there, which you briefly mentioned. So when you were designing the game, were you thinking about scope and scale actively? Was there something about the concept of Battlestar Galactica that suggested to you that this game would have to have a larger scope or scale? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there really is nothing that I dislike about Battlestar Galactica. So I was definitely trying to absorb a, a, a kind of everything from it and i think it's just it's quite a complex world and the same is true of last fleet so you've got the kind of fleet politics senior military people and politicians making difficult decisions you've got the low-level folks who have to go out and fly missions or hold off boarding actions or repair the planes you've got the kind of I can't think what a good word for this is, but the ordinary people in the fleet who are dealing with the kind of the panic, the fear, the constant living kind of hand-to-mouth. You've got the paranoia of there being infiltrators in the fleet who look exactly like everybody else, but they're infiltrators. Ah, they're secretly scary aliens. And, of course, running through it, you've got, as you mentioned, the personal relationships and the emotional well-being of people who are pushed to breaking point and that's a lot like i think if you tried to write a game that was just like oh now frame a scene and it would be like it would be really down to the people at the table to try and remember all that stuff and make it matter it would be really difficult so that's that i think when you've got all those different elements and you want them to have a, a real impact in the game that's when i tend to reach for a greater level of mechanical complexity than I maybe ordinarily would. And I think uh, I, I'm big into systems that feed each other, right? So the pressure system feeds into the emotional stuff, which feeds back in. They're all kind of little cogs turning each other a little bit. Is there a part of Last Fleet's design that comes to mind as the thing that you're most proud of? Well, I mean, I love the, the core of the game to me is about pushing yourself into very difficult action scenes and kind of refueling the energy that you need to do those through emotional encounters. But I don't think that Last Fleet's the only game that's done that. Indeed, Bite Marks did it, so amongst others. So I think the thing that people always come back to me and say, that they're really excited about, and I mention it a lot because I am proud of it, is the traitor mechanic. Because um, we've probably all, as role players, played some game where somebody was a traitor and it wasn't really very much fun. They just kind of, they backstab you. You find out probably late in the game and they go off with all your treasure or something and you think, oh, 
that was fun for you, traitor, but it wasn't very fun for everybody else. And I really wanted to include the concept of a traitor in this game. But I knew from that experience, but also from my friends, like Becky would say to me, I could never play a traitor. And I don't know if I'd want to play a game that had a traitor in it. We'd played the Battlestar Galactica board game, which is brilliant and has a traitor mechanic. But she found that really stressful, knowing that one of her friends was secretly going to stab her in the So I created this mechanic for the, it's particularly the Scorpio playbook, although it runs a little bit through some of the other ones as well, where you are a traitor, but everybody around the table knows that you're a traitor. Furthermore, you do not play a traitor yourself. You're like this person who's trying to do a good job of, of being a member of the fleet like anybody else, who keeps waking up and finding they've done something terrible like their their little sleeper agent half of them has done something dreadful and they can't control it but all they can do is try desperately to try and fix it while also not getting caught and i just think i i still think there's probably not a better way to do traitors than that because it is so much for everybody instead of it being this kind of me versus you thing everybody's brought into it and everybody gets to take part and even kind of lean into it and i mean we're playing last fleet at the moment on our podcast and we have a, a a scorpio on board and everybody's absolutely loving kind of either leaning into this i really trust this person and i'm going to let them screw me over to the maximum extent possible or i really don't trust this person and i'm going to keep following them around making their life difficult it's a great interplay okay yeah that is really cool and i do agree i think a lot of people struggle with the idea of a traitor mechanic but the interesting thing to me is that PBTA has always had this lineage of being a highly interpersonal game right in terms of people can be opposed one moment together another but they are pointed at each other uh, in a way and this has been true since apocalypse world right it, like it starts off with the premise that everybody is not on the same page they're not on the same team and some games have continued that lineage and others have just you know put everybody in the same team and it does feel like a completely different problem yeah it's not quite that i've kind of again probably influenced by the fact that becky hates playing traitors she, i mean she always says to me i want to play a big damn hero i don't want to be so i kind of coded all of the playbooks in last fleet there there are some which are very clearly kind of labeled on the scorpio being the strongest example but there are others the gemini and pisces i think have got elements of you are not necessarily fully on the same side as everybody else yeah. as a gemini you're a bit of a wheeler dealer you've got your own agenda you might be a criminal or you might be a terrorist or yeah. you might just be out for number so yeah it's like you get to choose and buy into the level of backstabbing that you want to do and everybody else can see that you've made that choice and enjoy it hopefully and not get stressed about it <laughs> it's really interesting to me that becky has this preference because bite marks her game is exactly the kind of game where people not necessarily on the same page all the time right they're fighting with each other till they're not fighting with each other till they come together because of something else before that they might be at each other's throats yeah, you, you know, you're 100% right. I'm going to call Becky on that. She obviously likes it more than she claims. But I guess I guess in Bite Marks, quite often, it's like you've done something bad and now you've got to... Like, that kind of has happened now. 
we're not necessarily going to play through you walking around with a dagger behind your back. It's more like you stab them in the front. Feel You all feel very sad about it. Very true, very true. Bite Marks is definitely the kind of game where you wear your heart on your sleeve, right? Uh, stab them in the front. <laughs> so how was the reception to Last Fleet? Because I know it's a, a heavy game in terms of its thematics and story. And I'm personally drawn to these kinds of games quite strongly. But at the same time, you know, I'm always a little bit cautious about pitching them because what if people aren't into playing a sad story right now? Yeah, so people, uh, we get positive feedback about all our games in terms of how well designed they are, how well written they are. Um, I think that Last Fleet has generated less buzz, it seems to me. And I wonder if it's partly due to timing. The game didn't actually come out until 2020. Uh, I think it came out in January 2020. And then something else happened a little while after that. And we experienced this ourselves because we were right in the middle of trying to do a, an actual play of Last Fleet for what was then the Indie League Presents podcast, which I, it was a great podcast. I loved it. But it, it was right in the middle of this kind of very stressful, um, for the record, for the people who in a hundred years time are still listening to this podcast because of how important Black Armada is to the cultural uh, development of role-playing games in the 22nd century, I'll just say that uh, what the thing that happened in 2020 was a pandemic and everybody was obviously really stressed. Um, and the idea of playing what is sort of a fairly grim, dark game. I mean, it's at the very least the premise that the whole of humanity has been wiped out and you're all on the run is quite, is not exactly kind of full of excitement and, and love for everyone, but uh, it can get even darker. It's often got themes of kind of military oppression and uh, as I say, the paranoia and so on. And, and I think that might have had something to do with why that game basically died halfway through. Um, there were other reasons too, but it, it fell over. And I do wonder, to a certain extent, we like, as Black Armada, we, we really like that kind of type of game. We like to delve into grim, challenging topics. And I don't mean this in a kind of, look at how edgy I am type of a way. I just mean we like a, a game with a kind of dark palette and a, a feel of the world is a difficult place, I guess. And then we hopefully leaven that with the love that the characters feel for each other, which often is part of our mechanics. But it, I do think it's challenging for people. And I do think the timing of that game, that particular game may have meant it didn't quite get the reception. Wow, yeah, that is quite hard to hear and accept that that sometimes there's genuinely like nothing that you can do about the success of your game right i think it's a quite an interesting thing about being a game designer and i guess probably any kind of creative is that when your stuff comes out it has a lot to do with its success like if games i think i have a feeling like wonder home maybe came out during that period is that people seem to be really wanting something that is more there's a word that people use for these games, isn't that cozy cozy thank you that's the word i'm thinking of the kind of cozy experience when you're having a difficult time and fair play that's what people want at the time you, you as a creator you just got to keep making stuff that you love and hopefully some of those games are going to find their mode some of them maybe less so yeah it does feel like sometimes when you're a publisher or a designer you're just putting coins in the slot machine, right? 
with each thing that you publish. It's just not a coin in the slot machine and you pull the lever and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And it doesn't feel like, you know, it has a lot to do with the quality of the game. Yeah, I, I really don't think it does have a lot to do with the quality. I, I feel like the the world of role-playing games much more rewards the production of things that pe- like concepts that people are excited by than necessarily the content you know it, it's a fact about role playing games it's that you bring to the table most of the experience most of the game is what you players do at the table and the game designer is sat at a long way back kind of desperately trying to pull on puppet strings to make you do the right kind of things that will make the, the game be what you hoped it would be as a designer but it's down to the people at the table so obviously the concept being something that really grabs people is always going to be super duper important. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so I'm interested in thinking about Black Armada Games as a as a business for this next question. We've had, you know, 10 years of more than 10 years of making games. So what does the financial side of Black Armada look like? Each of these games, Lovecraft Desk, Flotsam, Bite Marks, Last Fleet, they all got crowdfunding campaigns. They all had 600 to 700 people supporting them. Do these campaigns pay you a a reasonable wage? Do they justify the amount of work that you put into them? So this is a great question. And I think uh, like as a bit of context, we started writing games. um, I don't know how long Kickstarter had been around at that point, um, but we had Kickstarter. uh, We had print-on-demand, um, and these things were all relatively new is my kind of gut feel. Certainly, I'm really glad that they existed because if we had gone 10 years earlier, they did not exist unequivocally. There, there just wasn't anything like that. And so if you want, I mean, I think people who were writing role-playing games back then were having to print them on their little dot matrix or something and staple them and take them down to the shop who was probably not that interested in selling that product. And we came onto the scene at a time where you could uh, come up with an idea for a game, write it, raise money for it without very much risk at all. The main risk is your own motivation and ability to kind of keep pushing through once you've got the money. Thanks to POD to produce stuff uh, without a big outlay necessarily. You could sell it to 10 people uh, and that would be fine. Um. So from a business perspective, we are super duper risk averse people, me and Becky. She's a lawyer. I'm a civil servant. We do not like to take risks. So these things are very important for us. But we nevertheless came into Lovecraft Desk thinking, oh, what if it all goes wrong? What if we made a mistake in a rounding error and it all gets out of control? Because we'd seen people who'd done Kickstarters that were very successful, but actually cost the creator money. Anyway, long story short, we did, in fact, get it right. Hooray. Thanks to the liberal use of spreadsheets, we made an okay amount of money on the initial Kickstarter, like literally at the point we finished the Kickstarter and spent all of the money that we needed to, we had some left. And over the course of the the, the post-campaign sales, that got better and better. I try to keep like a spreadsheet of every product. I've stopped doing it now because it's getting too hard, but trying to work out how many hours did we put into it and how much money did we get out? And I can say that we made a good hourly rate from all of our big games. However, that doesn't really work as a way of making a living necessarily because 
actually making a single role playing game isn't necessarily something that takes a full year's worth of full time work. You know what I mean? So, like, you might be getting a good hourly rate, but you're not getting a good yearly rate. And that's, I think, where we have been up until last fleet that we were making money, feeling good about that, but maybe kind of looking at it and going, I'm not sure whether you could quit your job. But then I've quit my job. So that's changed things a bit. And that's partly, I think we live in a very kind of unjust world in a sense that people can't necessarily just say, well, I I really love making games. I'm good at it. Can I please do that as my living right from the word go? But the reality is you probably can't unless you've got some sort of financial thing underpinning that. And in our case, the financial thing underpinning that was that we both had um, reasonably well-paid jobs that propped us up. And the reason why I was able to quit my job was because we could look at our finances largely off the back of those jobs and say, we think it won't kill us if I do this and it doesn't work. We probably won't end up on the street. And that's largely to do with the non-role-playing side of our lives. But with that said, uh, the good news for anybody who's interested in doing this as a career is that over the course of many years, it, uh, I guess a decade, like you said, it's built up to the point where I now look at the numbers and I think, actually, maybe you could, as long as you don't want to live the high life, you, you probably can make a living off it. So there's a kind of there's a dance that you've got to do where you live with doing it part-time until you're ready to do it full that's my take on it. Wow, that is a really great answer. Thank you so much. Okay, so let's talk about Lovecraft-esque second edition. I think it was maybe three, four years ago during mid-2020 or something like that, where I first heard that you were planning to release a second edition. You put out a call for writers and I sent in an application because I wanted to do some sort of colonial Indian cosmic horror. And then recently you announced that, yeah, it's finally, it's finally time and you're actually running the crowdfunding campaign for second edition. So how long have you actually been thinking about making a second edition? And what about the base game merits a reworking, right? We first started thinking about making the Lovecraft as companion, I think, an idea which we eventually, I don't know if we quite abandoned it, but we stepped back at it from it in favor of the, the second edition. And I think when we first wrote Lovecraft S, we had this idea that we would put stuff on cards. Like, and I, this was not a particularly common thing to do back then, I don't think. I can't think of too many games that were doing it back then. We were like, yeah, we'll put stuff on cards because it'd be really cool. We have all these prompts on cards, it'd be really good. And then we kind of looked at the numbers, or I did really. I'm, I'm kind of the business side of uh, Black Armada, and saw that this was kind of difficult to do. It's like quite expensive to produce cards. There weren't very many people who would do it without very large numbers, which is very risky. Going back to the p- print on demand point, like had Lovecraft esque only just made its funding target, whatever that, that was, can't remember anymore. We could have printed 50 copies quite easily you could not produce 50 copies of a card-based game back then without and make any money at all we'd probably make a loss so we stepped back from it we said okay well we think we can do this game this other way 
and, that, and that's what we did. Then going forward, we started getting feedback from people about the scenarios which were in the game. So we, one of the things that I'm most proud about Lovecraft Desk is that we commissioned this incredibly diverse set of scenarios with ideas that you just did not hear about in cosmic horror games, settings and characters that were completely atypical, and writers who hadn't necessarily written a lot of Lovecrafty stuff too diverse writers but anyway that's that's just me tooting my own horn really but the feedback was the game is best when you play with scenarios because the scenarios are packed full of cool prompts um to help you get your story going uh, so there's no kind of moment where you like the base game in first edition effectively says make up a clue and this is a bit like back in when we first started doing story games we had a joke about oh now frame a scene this kind of the blank sheet of paper yeah, so you just got to come up with something out of whole cloth. And it, it works because most people can come up with something weird. It's not that hard. But it is it flies better with those prompts. And this, I think this kind of circled us back around to the original idea around cards. And then we saw Fiasco 2nd Edition and Zombie World and for the Queens and lots of card-based games coming out and thought, oh, maybe this is... Because I, I think I, I thought well, these guys must be crazy. You, you can't do that. But no, it turns out now you can. It is now possible to produce card games and, and boxed board games for a reasonable price. And so, yeah, I guess we we kind of wanted to make that game that we originally thought back at the beginning. And now we can do it. So that's why we're doing it. That's really cool. The idea that there was a vision that couldn't be realized back then and now circumstances have changed and you can realize this game the way you wanted to, that is extremely compelling to me. So other than the shift towards scenario design on cards and this cool new UV light-based art style that you're going to do, is there anything else that you feel that is there anything else that you felt needed tweaking or changing that you want to kind of mention? Yeah, so obviously there's new art and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's going to look really cool. We've We've added in a few mechanics. So, for example, there's a mechanic from Bleak Spirit that we've we've stolen, uh, and and the other, I guess, big change is the introduction of solo as a potential mode. Obviously, again, this is a sort of side effect of the pandemic. We've got a lot of love for solo games out there now. We might not have thought of it if, if it weren't for that, but fortunately, we have because I think the new format is super duper suited for like generation of random prompts on cards is kind of exactly what you need for a, for a solo game. So that's there. And there's a campaign mode there. I think we had a campaign mode in the first edition, but this is a bit, I, I think it's better. Yeah. I, I think those are the, the main things. There's probably other stuff I haven't, uh, haven't thought of. I, I guess the other side of the cards format, uh, which is not novel, but is a good thing is that all of the mechanical stuff is on cards so uh, well, we've had good feedback during playtesting about this that things like the rule of the rule of the game called the creeping horror rule, which says you can't introduce certain types of clue at the beginning of the game to keep things kind of low key and I think we say brooding rather than starting to get into some sort of to start to get into slasher type horror so it limits what you can do and it's written on a card so it just means that people who are new to the game not used to that 
it's super easy for them to just lean across the table and remind themselves what they're supposed to be doing. So I like that. Yeah, that feels like something that a lot of board games do, right? Like board games really have this sophisticated technology or or, or design of reference materials to be used at the table that is really cool. Completely. I kind of feel like I don't know why there isn't more of that in the TTRPG world. I think we've somehow, we've got ourselves, probably because of the fact that game the Games Master is such a dominant piece of technology, it's all in big fat books. And I feel like there's a, I like to imagine a future in which everyone is playing games that look more like board games, because I think that is something that is much more accessible for most people. And I think our hobby could be much bigger if we can open the door that way, because I think there's an awful lot of people who, quite apart from the issues around role-playing seeming kind of the most geeky possible thing you can do, that if you finally overcome that and walk into a role-playing shop, pick up a role-playing game, it's like, shit, look at the size of this. I I haven't got time to read that. So I want, yeah, I guess I have hopes that the likes of Fiasco 2nd Edition and Lovecraft Death 2nd Edition might start to push things in that direction. Okay, is there anything else you want to say about the uh, campaign for Lovecraft Desk 2E that you haven't said already? Well, I guess the main thing is uh, you've got to check out our list of scenario writers. I'm not going to... I don't know whether I should name any names here. And your scenario, Thomas, is absolutely... is a sm- smashing scenario. I love it. But it, 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 there are... I think we've commissioned 12 scenario writers. I think they're almost all brand new. It's a real range of people. We've got some We've got some quite big names, but also some up-and-coming people who I'm really excited about. So, yeah, I think even if you think the first edition was perfectly good, why on earth should I buy this? You should have a look at these scenarios that they're worth the money. Thank you. Thank you. I really like what I ended up coming up with for the scenario. So, yeah, and I hope people who back the game like it as well. Okay, I think now is a good time to get into the usual questions I ask every one of my guests. So, in a section called Infectious Enthusiasm, I ask, what's a game from another designer that you've had a lot of fun with and want to recommend? I'm going to go back to Microscope. I already mentioned it, but I really, and it's quite an old game now, I guess, by indie game standards. But I really heartily recommend Microscope to anyone who hasn't played it. For anyone who doesn't know, the the game is it's essentially a kind of it's a world building game but it's a, more than that it's a timeline building game you basically create a timeline of a, a potentially quite epic scope so it's one of, a rare game where you could say let's chart the entire course the rise and fall of an intergalactic empire or you could play game of thrones with this quite comfortably that kind of really broad sweep of of a setting and what i particularly love about it is each person on their turn they're going to create a little chunk of the history and they can put it anywhere in the timeline they like so it's like you can zip back and forth through the timeline you can recontextualize stuff that happened late in the timeline there's a cool thing you can do where somebody creates a thing and you immediately on your turn you blow it up and then you kind of fill in the gap in between it being created and blown up and yeah so i love that 
I love that. There is a particular ver- variant. So the Microscope Explorer is an expansion for Microscope. There's a variant called Microscope Union, which I particularly love. And that is a variant where you create a family tree. So you introduce, you one by one, you populate the various members of this family tree. And that, I, I think it adds something substantial to the original Microscope formula. So for anyone who does like Microscope but hasn't played that, go and try that because it really... I don't know if anyone has played Microscope and thought, gosh, this is really cool, but the characters feel a little bit remote from me because it's such a big epic timeline. Microscope Union fixes that and gives you delightful characters with wonderful backstabby relationships flowing forth this family tree. So I love it. And my next section is called Tyranny of Numbers. And I ask, what is a number or statistic that you can share from your work that you think would be useful to my audience? Okay. So I don't know who's in your audience, but I'm going to assume that you have some game designers in your audience. Yeah. So we, in our last campaign, we took a tentative step into the world of advertising, which is something that was psychologically challenging for us because we find there's something slightly distaste, distasteful about advertising, at least in, in kind of our cultural context. I don't know whether that's just us. But anyway, I will be publishing an article about this may even have come out by the time this uh, comes out so you can read that but i'll give you the headline which is that it worked basically and particularly we were fortunate because we were scared we were so scared of doing advertising and wasting money on it that we actually switched it off part way through the campaign and then switched it back on again so you can look at our little graph of the campaign you can see when the advertising was switched on you can see that it worked I looked at our campaigns, uh, all of our previous campaigns, and three other comparable campaigns. And uh, in the last three days, those campaigns made between 16% and 29% of their money. And we turned on our ads about a week before the end of the campaign. We made 66% of our money in the last three days. So I think that tells you something about how effective that was. So if you are like me and feel this is a bit distasteful, I would just urge you to think about that. You could be reaching people who probably would like your games and would like to uh, spend time enjoying them and what's wrong with that. Yeah, Backkit's advertising capability is super interesting. I don't know if everybody who's listening knows this, but most of the campaigns that you might have seen that did huge numbers, like you looked at them and went, wow, that's that's more zeros than I expect an RPG game to be able to get. Like most of those used backer kits, ads and promotion tools. Uh, and it's it's become this kind of invisible pillar of the high-end crowdfunding scene. So what backer kit do as i understand it and it is a little bit kind of there's a bit of a black box thing going on here but as i understand it back kit have been around since the first days of kickstarter our very first kickstarter we used them for the post campaign thing where you're getting a survey and all of that to gather your information and what that means is that they've got like zillions of people's data basically they know the crowdfunding scene inside and out and, and that includes the gaming crowdfunding scene so what they do is they buy Facebook ads primarily, I think. They maybe buy ads elsewhere, but I think it's mainly Facebook. 
and they combine Facebook's terrifying algorithmic data mining operation with the fact that they know who the sorts of people who buy and back tabletop role-playing games and therefore their targeting is really good. That's thing one. But thing two is they will basically front the cost of the ads for you. So that you don't charge you don't get charged for the cost of the ads until the campaign is over. Clearly there is a risk that then you end up paying more money on ads than you would have liked. And that's what we were terrified of. But the way that they manage it is they get you give them a number and the number is called return on advertising spend. It basically says for every dollar or pound that you spend on advertising, how many dollars or pounds worth of pledges would you want to have? Obviously, if you say a million, then they're going to say, okay, nice to see you. Goodbye. So they're, they're looking for a number in the kind of three to five range generally, I think. And you, what you can, obviously what you should do is put your campaign information into a spreadsheet and work out what's the number where you can, if you spend this amount of money on advertising and get this much of a pledge back where you'll make a little bit of money, you won't lose money. And then you, and this is the scary part, you hand that number over to them and their little advertising operation sits there and watches the number and spends money on your behalf on ads. And we found this really anxiety inducing because you're seeing these numbers kind of spiking around and you go, oh no, stop spending money. It doesn't, it's kind of horrible, but it does seem to work. The other thing I will say for anyone who's not done this is, you do have to produce all of the advertising assets yourself. So you're producing like little pictures and things. So all those kind of snazzy ads that you see, it's not Backerkit or Facebook that makes them. It's the people who do. And that is unfortunately a big advantage of the big guns, presumably, I'm guessing. The really big companies who make their million dollar Kickstarters have got folk who are professionals who make the ads for them. I made our ads. I don't know whether they're very good, but I did it. So uh, anyway, long story short, allow some time don't rock up to them on the first day of your campaign and say i'd like to do some advertising please like if you want to do some good adverts it's going to take you a couple of weeks to make them if you're working quite solidly on it i would think so you want to come well in advance with all of that and they will also annoy you by coming to you midway through the campaign saying can we have some more we kind of used all the ones you make can we have some more so make more than you need that is a fantastic answer. Thank you so much for the in-depth reply. Cool. So in the section titled, All Advice is Advice for Myself, I ask, what's a habit or technique that you are trying to get better at at your table? Yeah. So I want to name check my friend Nick, Nick Bate, who writes Stealing the Throne and Karen's Doom, who I roleplay with quite a lot. And he has this amazing thing that he does, which I have named Thinking Out Loud. And he does this both as a player and when he's playing his characters. And I love it because as a player, he just spells out what he's thinking about at a given, at a given moment. He'll say, oh, I, I, I want my character to come and he's going to admit to a secret now, but I'm not sure well, there might be some way that you know that he's, he's got a secret that he's hiding or... He'll describe how his character is coming into a scene and he looks pissed off, but you can tell that really he's guilty. And it's just this kind of spelling out the implicit, right? 
or maybe spelling out the thing that you didn't wouldn't have known otherwise making the implicit explicit thinking out loud and i just love when he does that because it it makes it so easy for me as another player or as his gm to kind of know what's really going on in his mind and so that's that is the thing i am trying to do more of i don't find that as easy i tend to i come from a bit of a background of what you might call immersive larping where everyone's constantly in character and you don't say or do anything unless it's in character so it goes against my instincts a little bit to to say those kind of to step out and say looking at this from the outside this is what you would maybe notice uh, but i think it's a really good thing to do uh, because it does empower the other people around you to then play into whatever it is you're trying to do i also love it when people do that okay thank you for a really lovely chat josh i feel like we've covered so much and i've learned a lot and you've been really generous with your time and answers so thank you for being here thank you for doing this so anything you want to say before we wrap up can i mention that black armada has a patreon i should do much more to p- push our patreon we produce a game every month and we've produced some really amazing stuff on there that i think deserves to be seen by as many people as possible wreck this deck came out of our patreon we've got like recent games include uh the a game where you play monsters in a football team <laughs> a proper football team not an american football team um we've got witches familiars having silly little adventures we've got tv ghost hunters going into haunted houses and trying to find out what's going on there I mean, it's just it's really good stuff and i'd i'd love it if anybody who's listening that likes the sound of that please come and and join our patreon yeah thank you thomas it was a really interesting chat and i appreciate you um having me on well folks i hope you enjoyed that interview thanks to josh for giving me his time and his transparency and frankness with all of his answers i really appreciated it The next thing to drop on the SND podcast feed will be the next episode of the Teaching Game series. I teased it a bit in the last Teaching Games episode. It's going to be Girl by Moonlight, designed by Andrew Gillis and published by Evil Hat. I'm very excited for that. I think it's really good, and if you are excited about the game and you should be, check it out. Signing off, like Marx used to say, does indie need you? Yes, indeed. And cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard, and there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Uh,